Today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed, number 90, Takeaways from the Lilly Conference. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I just got back from the Lilly Conference. Well, I shouldn't say get back. It sounds like I actually had to travel long distances. It was in Newport Beach, California, which is about 30 minutes from where we live. And I'm excited to be welcoming back to the show Todd Sakrisik, who is the person who plans and makes all of the magic happen. He's the former executive director of the Academy of Educators in the School of Medicine and is an associate professor in the Department of the Family Medicine at UNC Chapel Hill. And he's the immediate past executive director of the Center for Faculty Excellence at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And he's such an engaging presenter. He was one of the keynotes at the presenters. And as I said, is also the key planner of the California Lilly Conference. And I'm just so excited to be getting one more opportunity to learn from him and share some of the learning that I took away from the conference as well. Todd, welcome back to Teaching in Higher Ed. Well, thank you, Bonnie. It's great to be back at the show. I appreciate you so quickly unpacking your suitcase, although maybe you just leave your suitcase packed all of the time in your life, but unpacking that suitcase and willing to come in and share a little bit about the Lilly Conference. And one thing I know we both want to stress up front, this is not an advertisement for the Lilly Conference. And there's a couple of reasons why. One would be that the Lilly Conference is now over, so you can't travel back in time and attend it, although you could probably start thinking about next year if you want to think about spring of 2017 in gorgeous California. But also, we really want to just have it be for whether people couldn't be there and want to hear what our key takeaways were, or people who were there and want to reflect more. I know that was a big thing for me was reflecting on what I learned. So it's not an advertisement. You have paid no money to be here. I have paid you no money to be here. But you did give me a free book, which was wonderful. So I did you. saved you like probably fifteen dollars yep. off Amazon there. So that's, that's good. Huge. Well, the other thing I think it's worth saying, Bonnie, is another reason to have this conversation is just like anybody who comes back from one of these conferences, any teaching conference out there, a teaching conference is so different from a disciplinary conference, and people just get just jazzed in the fact that you've got people from different disciplines facing common issues, but they approach the solutions from their home disciplines. So. You see all these a wide variety of, of ways of addressing these common issues. So, yeah, I think it's a great opportunity just to talk about teaching and learning in general. In the session that I gave, I read a quote from Parker Palmer, and I'm just going to read it really quick because it reminds me of, I'm not exaggerating when I say this, every single person that I met is reflected in this quote. I am a teacher at heart, and there are moments in the classroom when I can hardly hold the joy. When my students and I discover uncharted territory to explore, when the pathway out of a thicket opens up before us, when our experience is illumined by the lightning life of the mind, then teaching is the finest work I know. That's a great quote. I love that quote. That was everyone at the conference, every single person that I met. 
has a passion for teaching. And as you said, from so many different disciplines, I'll tell you one thing, one of my treasured memories is sitting at lunch in the gorgeous California sun. I promise it's not an advertisement, but it really was pretty during <laughs> was the conference. Beautiful there. And there were a couple of guys from, I believe it was the University of Houston, and they both teach in political science, one incredibly conservative, one incredibly progressive in their politics, and just watching them have such healthy discourse. And I, I mean, it was just lovely to see when every time we turn on the news, we see the opposite of that. So it was really yes. delightful. And as you said, all different disciplines, I, I met people from that. And one of the things I was going to mention, there is a woman from Egypt who I know of from Twitter, Maha Bali, and I'll put a link to her Twitter handle inside of the show notes. But she does something called virtual connecting. And she does it with someone else, although right now I don't have the woman's name right in front of me. But for when they can't go to conferences, or for when they're at a conference, and they want to help welcome someone else and they have these virtual connections that happen. And sometimes the virtual connection happens inside of a session, but a lot of times it happens outside the session in the hallway conversations that we are so typically having at these kinds of conferences. They're often connecting with someone on a Google Hangout or over Skype and introducing them to people there and the learning that's going on at the conference. So that's kind of what you and I are going to try to do on this on this podcast is just a few takeaways from the conference that each of us has. Excellent. Sounds great. And one of the people that for, I heard him speak for the first time was Terry Doyle. And I know you know him quite well and have co-authored a book with him as well. But he talked about just how difficult teaching is. And I love yes. that. Yeah. I think one of the problems we have in our society is it feels like everybody teaches and everybody learns. If if I ask you the directions to the airport and you explain them to me well, you've taught me how to get to the airport. And if I'm walking by a window and I watch somebody do something for a few seconds, then I've just learned that. And it makes it feel like the process of teaching and the process of learning is very natural. The challenge becomes when you put 20, 30, or 40 people in a room and you have three months to bring about the best change in them that you possibly can. And that means coming up with a variety of activities and different ways of doing things. And it's an incredibly complex process. And I don't want to I don't want to scare anybody, but I'd also like to bring recognition to the fabulous, fabulous work that people do when they do connect with students and have a great classroom experience. It's a lot of work. He framed his conversation around three questions that we should ask ourselves. The first one being, what content should we teach? Which that in and of itself, I mean, I just stop right there and go, I'm, I'm teaching a class for the first time. And I've talked about it a few times on the podcast. So it's not the deep, dark secret that it so often is when we teach things that we are not as familiar with. And just that idea, I already know I'm guilty as charged that I'm trying to teach too much. And one of the questions he posed was asking ourselves the question in five, at least I'm not sure it was he that posed it. Somebody posed the question in five years after somebody takes our class, what would we like them to say about it? Yep. That was Terry um, quoting, eh, not quoting, using Guido Sarducci's five minute university in a slightly different way. Five years after your students graduate, what would you really want him or her to actually remember? I did not have that five-minute university in my the show notes until you said that, and I've just added it back in. That was a hysterical clip. I'm not familiar with that at all. It's the first time I ever saw it. Yep. It's an old, old 1970s clip. Oh, priceless. Well, we will link to it if it's available somewhere on the internet. We will, on those interwebs, we will find it and post yep. it up there. Yeah, just that idea. <laughs> what do we want to say in five years? And then the other two questions he posed, one would be, what can students do on their own? 
And one really small thing that I did in my business ethics class that worked out super well, and this is so basic, but just I hadn't tried it before was we were talking some about ethics related to product liability. And so I had them go look on the consumer protection website and go look on the FDA website and just come to class prepared to share one interesting thing that you found on each site. And they came, (laughs) it ended up being the craziest conversation because when you give students an opportunity to explore, you absolutely never know where their journey will take them. So we talked about hoverboards And we talked about one of the students, her mom owns a collections agency. So she was sharing about one of the suits related to them cracking down on collections agencies that was particularly personal to her and just saying, gosh, we can look at this with a number of different lenses. It was just the most fascinating conversation because the students had a chance to go and explore on their own. And then the last question he asked, and I'll stop talking and let you give some examples. He says, what is the best use of our time? And for me, the best use of our time was, tell me what you found when you explored. Yeah, I think one of the things we forget is that the students are capable of learning. And it sounds like a terrible statement to make as a faculty member. But when you walk into the classroom with a concept of today, I need to cover chapter six. And what I'm going to do then is outline it and make sure that I talk about every part of chapter six and explain it. We're not really leaving that room for students to explore and to learn. We're telling them. And so teaching should be more than telling. So part of what we do is we find opportunities to push students and have them do things. And, you know, Vygotsky brought this up years ago with the zones of proximal development is where is a student able to perform? And what we really want to do is catch a student where they're capable, but slightly uncomfortable. And we're that bridge, we're that assistance that can help move them along into an area that they're a little bit uncomfortable with, but still within their grasp. And that's the area we want to hit. And I think that's what Terry was getting at with his presentation. Another of many superb speakers that you had there was Stephen Brookfield. And for people who haven't maybe been listening to the show since the very beginning, and I know there's many of you, he was actually back on the show on episode 15. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes at teachinginhighered.com slash 90. And what a wonderful conversation he brought then and also brought today, all this time later at the conference. And one of the big takeaways I took from him this time And it's something I already know, but I can't hear enough is just the constant need for us to be sharing with the students. The reason why we are doing this is, and -hmm. one of the things he's really always stressed is, is back to what you just said about the zones of proximal development is that, yeah, you're stretching me, you're making me uncomfortable and I don't like this. And in our case, those of us that are using some of these teaching techniques, we are breaking very ingrained norms. And that is uncomfortable for people. I still remember being in college and being asked to write a paper for introduction to sociology that involved breaking various norms. And my entire papers were always about how I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't bring myself to do it. And so that's what we're asking our students to do. So if we remember all the way along as we're making them uncomfortable and perhaps unhappy, that if we consistently explain the reason why we're doing this. And for me, that, that Stephen didn't say this, but for me, I have found just even in the last couple of years that it's not just an instructive intent that I have, like I'm going to teach you how I'm attempting to teach you, but it's also just to remind them of where my heart is. And I'm doing this because I care. I do this a lot with just, I think about how I used to say, put your cell phone away, put your laptop away. 
It used to be a very command and control relative to what it is today. And today, every time it's just like, oh, you know what? We're actually not going to need that laptop today. It's not going to serve us very well. We'll bring it back out next week. And it's just, it's a kinder approach and one that I think um, shows them a little bit more of my deep care for them. Well, I think, and Stephen brought up one other, there's a quote from one of his books or articles there so many years ago and it was um there are very few opportunities for us as faculty members to actually experience or to feel what it is to be a student and conferences are one of those opportunities so you know we started out and we're talking about this conference a bit but whenever you go to a conference to be able to sit back and think okay now i'm a student what really works for me what doesn't work for me and thinking through the process of it is also very very helpful but what you've been mentioning too is explaining to people why you want them to do something is a huge concept in, um, I'm an industrial psychologist. So in industry and in business is if a worker knows why they're doing something, they're much better at doing it than if they just are, you know, it's a mystery to them why they need to do a certain procedure or why they have to follow a certain policy. You explain if we don't follow this policy, then the accountant can't do this part and, and there's no billing. And so we make no money. So we need this piece. So the same type of thing in teaching. Uh, we just explain why we're using a certain procedure, um, a certain approach, and then explain to the students the value behind it. It really helps them to understand why they're doing it. Speaking of industrial psychology, it also reminds me of another related thing, and that is back to the learnings from the Hawthorne studies. And for anyone listening not familiar with the Hawthorne studies, this was in an electrical manufacturing plant. And yeah. they would go to their workers and they're they're genuinely trying to say, how do we create the most production out of this manufacturing line? Does it work better when we put the lights down? And they would go and ask them, how does this work for you? Do you like this? Does it work for you? It's not. And they, they put the lights back up. The lesson learned was that it had very little to do with the lighting conditions and very much to do with being asked about well, the kind of Bonnie. Oh, okay. was, what they found was they, they didn't have their control group and they were changing the lighting settings, if I recall correctly. I haven't looked at that study in 20 years, but they were making all these adjustments and they wondered if we increased the lighting, would people produce more? And they yeah. increased the lighting and they produced more. And then they tried things like changing the environment and they did all these different things. But then they found, well, we better double check. And so then they lowered the lighting and productivity went up more. Yeah. And everything they did changed the productivity. And what they determined in the end was just paying attention to people <laughs> increased the productivity to go up. Yeah. So the Hawthorne effect is essentially as soon as you start studying something, you start to see some results, which I will tie in very quickly. You have to be extremely careful in teaching and learning because People will try things in teaching and learning and see better responses from their students, which is the equivalent of the Hawthorne effect. Mm. Because if I, for instance, walk into the classroom and say, hey, everybody, let's just stand up and stretch really fast. So everybody stand up and stretch a little bit. Now sit down and let's get to learning. You may see the learning increase. At that moment, you don't know if the learning increased because you stood up and stretched, which a lot of people feel that probably it is that, or it's just because you did something different. So we always have to be careful and do something for a period of time to make sure it wasn't, well, the Hawthorne effect. And that reminds me of something that was so powerful that you said in your presentation about avoiding the either or thinking because it could have been both that the stretching really worked and also mixing it up completely worked. Yeah. Would you share a little bit of some of your thoughts just about the dangers of either or thinking, particularly as it relates to our own teaching and approaches that we use? Oh, certainly. So... I do get concerned at times that we we like to put 
We like to put individuals into boxes. We do this all the time, even though we claim we don't like to do it. As soon as we start saying things like, well, that, that student's an introvert in class. How do I get my introverts to talk? Or I have a student who's a real extrovert who talks a lot. So as soon as we start thinking introvert, extrovert, then we're putting people at two opposite ends of a spectrum. The Myers-Briggs doesn't actually do intend to do that. We Most people are not introverts or extroverts. There's some space in between the two. So that concept of, are you an introvert versus an extrovert? Should we use lecturing versus active learning? I, the, the research doesn't indicate that you should do one or the other. It says we should include engaged active learning with lecturing. And the point going through here is, Anytime we start looking at these concepts and saying, should we do this or that? Do the students fall into this category or the other category? We lose the richness of all of the individuals in between. It can be as basic as talking about students turning papers in on time. Do your students tend to turn your papers in on time or not turn them in on time? We love these dichotomies all the time. So I think the danger is there is if we're always thinking of them as a dichotomy. And so instead, I think we have to look at that richness that happens there because we are always operating in systems. You've talked about a couple of myths that really come up every time we look at teaching and learning. I shouldn't say every time, but but are frequently there. And one of them has to do with a learning period. And I'll tell you, I have been seeing this thing for more than 20 years. It's just been around a long time. And for people who may not be familiar with it or need a little jog of their memory, it's a pyramid that at the very top is if I just see something, is that right, Todd? And then it, if I see it and write it down, and then if I see it and write it down, and I, there's it just moves all the way down. And I forgot what's at the bottom of the pyramid. Yeah, it's basically, it's the old concept of, um, I remember 5% of what I I don't know if I can remember all of these, but it's something like 5% of what I hear and 10% of what I see. If it's an audio visual thing, it's like a 20%. If I have a discussion, it's a 50%. If you practice it, it's like 75. And, and if I teach somebody, it's 90. So it's, it's this pyramid that starts out at the very top of if you only hear something, you remember very little, but all the way down to the bottom, if you're teaching others, you remember a great deal more. And the issue is that came from an old study by a um, name, person named Cohn, but um, the concept here is this pyramid emerged and the numbers look way too clean. It's mm-hmm. like 5%, 10%, 20%, 30%. And I've taught research methods for so many years. I always told my students, if you ever see really clean, clean numbers, definitely check it out because data almost never comes out that clean. And so apparently, and this is according to the websites that are out there, is that um, some individuals started digging into it a little bit. And it appears that all of those numbers are fabricated. And so the concepts are still good. The more you do something, the more likely you are to remember it. That's nice. But this actual pyramid that's put out that has those percentages on it essentially are just are just concocted numbers. And you can find that out by essentially searching very easily under learning pyramid and myth, and it will just pop right up the whole the whole discussion of it. And speaking of things that we can type into Google, what's going to happen if I type in learning styles myth? Oh, it, well, that's a tricky one, too. And I'm not I'm not sure if I really call this a myth. A lot of people around the country are now talking about this. In fact, I was so encouraged just recently. I picked up uh, I work at UNC Chapel Hill and I picked up the student newspaper and one of the students in just this quick off comment toward the end, not an off comment, like an off the hand comment toward the end, mentioned something along the lines of, well, I guess I could just pretend like learning styles mean something. So it was interesting. It's really becoming pervasive. And the idea is it's called meshing. It's teaching to a given learning style. 
And an article came out a few years ago by Pastor McDaniel Roran Bork, I believe it was, um, 2007, I'm pretty sure, and demonstrated, they went through and, and looked at all the literature, and I guess I should say failed to demonstrate, that there was any actual impact of teaching to a given learning style. There's some questions to not, whether or not people actually even have learning styles. So that's a debatable point right now, um, although we certainly have different ways of learning. So there are learning, and there are certainly learning preferences. Now, a learning preference is something that you would develop through years. For instance, if I work with my hands a lot, I would prefer to learn by working with my hands. A style oftentimes is referred to as a way of doing it, which means I might feel like the only way I can learn is by working with my hands, which would mean I am a kinesthetic learner and it's my only way of learning. A preference is, hey, if I'm given a choice, I'd prefer to do this. The big dilemma here is if a person sees herself or himself is a visual learner and there are not many visuals, then that individual might say, well, I can't possibly learn because I'm a visual learner and there's no visuals. So the issue we have here is whether that's true or not. And there's no evidence that that's true. A person who claims to be a visual learner could listen to a podcast and learn a lot. One of the tools that you brought up that hasn't actually been mentioned on any episode previously is from D. Fink. Can you share a little bit about his taxonomy of significant learning? Oh, yes. Well, Dee Fink, Dee's a neat guy. He's he's really, really concerned with the concept of providing these really good learning environments for students. And in 2003, he wrote a book, Creating Significant Learning Experiences, and then he was um, revised in 2013. And one of the things that he really takes to heart in here is looking through what it is we really have to take into consideration when we, when we teach or when we're learning. And Specific content has always been there. When I first started teaching, I knew that my job was to help my students to grasp as much statistics as they could, so that was the content knowledge. But what Dee points out is it's more than just content knowledge here. If we want people to apply things, we have to teach them to apply. If we want them to synthesize, we have to teach them to synthesize. And then there's a whole chunk of an area that people hadn't thought about for years and years, and that's the aspect of caring for human beings, the respect that we show in the classroom which, by the way, shows up in teaching evaluations all the time, and even the process of learning to learn. So if we take the human side of the this whole taxonomy or the, the concept of learning, that's an, a very, very important component to the actual learning process. You know, we care whether or not a student learns and helping the student to be a better learner in addition to saying, here's the content you need to learn. There were a couple of studies that you mentioned I wasn't familiar with. I'm not sure I'm going to pronounce his last name. Hakey, H-A-K-E, from 1990, and Carl, Carl Wyman both have looked at group work. And can you share a little bit about what they found about group work and what we can learn from in our own teaching? Sure. So, I mean, Carl Wyman, basically, just look up the Carl Wyman Project. There's some really good stuff up there. One of the quick studies that they did was he would lecture, but he would have graduate students do active learning on the same content. And then they would give a quiz. And the graduate students teaching through active learning, those students did significantly better than his students when he lectured to them. And it was a demonstration that even if you are a Nobel Prize winning physicist, that the pure concept of lecturing may not be the best way to acquire information for your students. And so, again, reinforce the concept of incorporating engaged active learning. And Richard Hake is a physicist. Lots of good stuff comes out of physics, actually, for active engaged learning. But he did a uh, kind of a summary of 6,000 students that he, he looked at and found that essentially if you only lectured, 
you never had the same gains as you did when you started to incorporate aspects of active engaged learning. So both of those both those individuals and several others out there doing the same thing are demonstrating that lecturing alone simply does not return the same kind of advances that you get when you add in engaged active kinds of learning, which, by the way, tying back into an earlier point you made, when we do the either ors, that doesn't mean we stop lecturing and do engaged learning. It means that we have to bring engaged learning into the classroom. This is the point in the show when I ask you to be funny. And I ask you to be funny and make a joke about something we talked about a few moments ago, <laughs> because I can't I can't go on to the next one until you just share quickly about this onion story that you found. <laughs> but I realize wow. I'm being a little choppy here, but I think people will be able to follow because that was just priceless. And I'll link to it in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, it was it was one I found a long time ago. It was back in 2000, 2002, somewhere in there. And it was an onion article and um Caught me off guard, Bonnie, because I don't have it in front of me, but of I've course, heard it so many times. <laughs> yes. So the, the article itself was um, parents of nasal learners demand an odor-based curriculum. And as the onion is so good to do with these things, if we stop and think for just a minute, the real danger of this whole concept of having a learning style is if I'm a visual learner, which I just said a few seconds ago, if I'm a visual learner and you don't teach with visuals, then I can't possibly learn from you. And the dilemma is as soon as I say I can't learn from you, that's when learning stops. It's not because there's a failure of having um, pictures or visual images. It's because in my head, I don't think I can learn. So this article was so perfect. It has a little picture uh, picture of a small girl <laughs> who's kind of agonizing <laughs> over a book. And then this, the caption is, a nasal learner struggling with an odorless textbook. And then my favorite quote, which I do have memorized, at least I, I'm going to try it, and I think I do, was, my 15-year-old daughter, Chloe, used to goof off with her friends and get into trouble, said Michael Sweeney of Oswego, New York. Now I realize all those Ds and Fs did not represent any failure on my daughter's part, but rather the school's failure to provide an appropriate nasal-based curriculum. If you don't teach the way my kid learns, it isn't her fault. And that's the real danger. That one is particularly priceless to me because of part of my dissertation was on the locus of control. Oh, and yeah. that, that idea that how we explain what happens to us. And if I've got a very external locus of control, then I'm going to blame my daughter's lack of learning on somebody else that didn't teach her with her preferred yeah. learning style. Yeah, it's wonderful. But it is, but I have to jump in there. We can't leave this topic without at least pointing out that odor is an incredibly important retrieval cue. So ironically, the concept of learning through odor differentiation, it actually there is something there that could be said for that. I want to share a quick story and then I want to hear you tell me more about that. The, the quick story is that I smelled vinegar uh, something like 10 years ago and instantly had a flashback from my childhood. I'm terrible at remembering things from childhood. My brother has a mind that can really retrieve stuff from childhood and I just can't. Instantly remembered taking a drink of the Easter egg dye at Easter, thinking that it was my Sprite. This is before it had the, the color the color for the Easter eggs in there. I mean, it was an instant thing. Yep. And that does remind me of just how powerful our scent is in memory. But I don't know that much about it. So t tell us a little bit more about how scent is a trigger for well, memory. Well, it's just the way the brain is wired. But it's, it's a retrieval cue. We have all kinds of retrieval cues. The human brain is an amazing, amazing thing in how it sets it up so that we can remember so many things. I mean, you have millions and millions of pieces of information. And, you know, we may not be Watson. He might kick our butts on Jeopardy, but by and large, getting through the day requires us 
the it's a necessary to be able to pull information up kind of at will. We got to be able to get to it. However, if it's always there, then of course it'd be overwhelming. There's no way we could be processing all that all the time, kind of thinking of the RAM on a computer kind of concept. And so what odors do is they provide those really strong retrieval cues. And in fact, if you're selling a house, we, you know, a lot of people know this. If you're getting ready to sell the house, one of the best things you can do when you have an open house is to bake something. And the concept of baking some cookies, baking some bread, is that folks come through the door, they take a deep breath, they smell that, and they, ah, and it just feels like home. And so it has all kinds of impact, not only on our cognitive uh, memories, but also on our emotions. The last person I want to share about before we move on to the recommendation segment, I'm sure we can wrap up in less than 60 seconds. Ha ha ha. I say it was an incredibly powerful talk about inclusion. And the presenter's name is Catherine Plank. And it was the first time I had ever met her. And it was incredible. It was an amazing presentation. And the thing I think she's particularly gifted at is having a conversation about inclusion which so often will will use these really powerful words that tend to make some people defensive, like privilege. And she did it in such a way that invited people in to have a conversation. And and I just I know you had some thoughts on how she might have been able to do such a such a powerful thing without creating the usual sense of defensiveness. Well, first of all, I think Catherine's just an amazing individual. I've just always been very impressed with how she thinks about things and how she comes across to others and the way that she presents ideas. And I believe that she somehow has this wonderful balance of she deep in her soul believes in uh, in equity and equality and and just fairness and all of those things. She's just down in her soul. She believes that. But she doesn't ever come across as trying to tell you you should believe that too. It's almost if she just kind of wonders aloud. It's kind of a, you know, I wonder why is it that that people would be treating differently in this. And it isn't telling you you should treat them the same. She's kind of curious why they wouldn't be. And I think if you have this deep-seated belief in something without trying to force it on somebody else in an inquisitive nature that you just kind of express out loud, it draws other people in. And so instead of people being turned off and trying to to be defensive against what she says, I find them kind of leaning forward and, and wanting to know why she thinks that. And, and it starts to make them think the same way in terms of, huh, I wonder why that is. And, and that brings about change. I just, I just think she does a phenomenal job of that. Well, I'm definitely going to invite her on the show. And with your permission, we'll definitely drop your name. And say, yeah. Todd's been on the show. You should come. She was just a delight to hear. And I'm she actually going to end the main part of the show with a quote that she started her presentation with. And then I know each of us has at least one thing, if not more, to recommend. This is a quote from John Moore, Penn State teacher too. The instructor in a group inquiry must be prepared to lose control of the direction in which the class is going and prepared to travel down dark alleys with bold students. That's a great quote. Yeah. We started with the thickets and we're ending with the thickets. (laughs) Yep. I don't think we have enough new quotes like those things. We need to dig around for somebody who said something like that yesterday or something. Yeah. It's got to be around. I just, we got to find those. Those are such very powerful words. Yeah. My recommendation is going to be a service called Slido. It's S-L-I dot D-O, although you can also get it from Slido.com. And it actually is related to a connection that I made at the conference. And it's Mike Trong from Azusa Pacific University. 
And it was one of those great things where we just had an instant connection in terms of our passion for teaching and using technology to facilitate learning. And this is a tool that he's gotten a lot out of. And I got so passionate about it, I actually ended up learning how to work it, and it wasn't hard, overnight and used it in my presentation. And I'll be using it in a presentation on Monday when I present to our full faculty at our university. It's great. So what it does is it combines two needs that we have when anytime we're going to present to a relatively large group of people. One thing we might want to do is to get them to be asking their questions, but I don't know anything about other people's groups of faculty when you pull them together. Sometimes it's the loudest voice or the quick voice that's the first one to speak, and maybe you want to give other people an opportunity to ask questions, so it starts to pull questions. And you, there's just an event code that it makes for whatever event you're having, and people can ask questions whenever they have them. And then other people can vote up with the little thumbs up like button. So you can start to get a sense of which questions would be most important to address first and which ones the group is most interested in hearing. And I did that a little bit with the group and then was able to answer other questions that we didn't get to as a follow-up and point them over to the website. It worked really well. And then the other need that we so often have is to create that sense of whether it's wanting to have students do retrieval or whether it's wanting to get their opinion about something or want to do some sort of problem-based instruction, that type of thing. So if we want to do polls or questions, whether they're multiple choice or open-ended, we can do that in there as well. The free version is pretty remarkable to me, up to a thousand people at an event you could have on the free version, but only have three of these questions that you might pose. And then they have an education pricing for $99 a year. You can have unlimited polls and uh, up to a thousand people, which is pretty, a pretty good price for educators. So I already have actually today I'll be purchasing my annual membership so I can get more than those three polls per session. That sounds like a great resource. I yeah, like that. it's great. And what is it that you'd like to recommend today? Well, you know, I don't like the self-serving approach of this, but I, I and I don't tend to do it a lot, which is one of those things that like I never do this, but I am today. So, <laughs> you know, Claire Major and Michael Harris and I wrote a book just a couple of months ago that I'm really, really excited about. And it's called Teaching for Learning, 101 Intentionally Designed Activities to Put Students on the Path to Success. And the reason we pulled this together is so many people are talking about and incorporating active, engaged learning in the classroom, but a lot of folks don't know how to do it or don't know what the literature is behind it. So these 101 activities essentially not only demonstrate how to do the active learning, but actually talk about the research behind them and some of the um, foundational articles, uh, research articles to support each one of them. So I think that's a helpful book for getting rolling on more engaged learning. I'm so glad that you recommended it. And I'm, I'm glad that you pushed past that hesitancy because it isn't something that you normally do. And I know this is something you're really proud of. And I also know that you're going to be coming back on the show. I don't remember when we talked about, but to talk about another resource or was that the resource? <laughs> Regardless, you're going to be back to, to share some more because this is just what I hope is just the start to continued conversation. Happy to come back anytime. You have a fabulous show you do here and always enjoy speaking with you. Thanks. And I'm going to actually recommend one quick thing before we close. I did promise it's not an advertisement for the Lilly Conference, but I'd like to turn it into an advertisement for the Lilly Conference to say this is a phenomenal conference. And I know that the one in California, I just think it's lovely because it's such a great place where it's located. But there are five other locations where Lilly Conferences take place. Is that correct? 
Yeah, a total of five, and I work really, really hard. The, the most important thing to me is community, which really, really made me feel wonderful to, that what you talked about the conference is it's not a concept of just bringing a bunch of people together. I want folks together who really share with one another and feel comfortable exposing what they're trying and what works well and doesn't work, but it's all about community, and we try to keep it down around 300 to 400 people, so it really does give you that opportunity to have some variety and and learn different things, but also not feel overwhelmed by the number of people there. And so I appreciate you being there. You were a fabulous community member and you made it a better event. Well, I will be putting a link in the show notes to the Lilly conferences in general and the one held here in California and just hope someone will have a chance to make it out here perhaps next year to California and we can make some connections in person. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Thanks again to Todd for all your planning on the conference. It was fabulous. And also for investing your time when you just got home into supporting the listening community. Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity. Thanks once again to Todd Sakrisik for joining me to share about the key learnings that we had from the Lilly Conference. And thanks all of you for listening and being able to take away a little bit yourself. As always, I'd like to remind you if you have yet to subscribe to the email newsletter that I send out every week, it's just one email and you get all of the show notes from the links and all of the links of the things that we talk about as well as when you first sign up, you get an educational technologies guidebook that gives you 19 tools to help you integrate technology in with your teaching. All of that can be found at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And I also welcome your feedback on the show. It's one of the ways that the show is growing in terms not just of size, but also in strength of community. And you can give feedback at teachinginhighered.com slash feedback. And as always would suggest and plead and beg, no, not beg, but just encourage, prod you to go and rate or review the show. That just, again, helps build the strength of the community and help us connect with one another better as we continue to improve on our teaching. Thanks for listening.